This evening I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I believe that is page 839 on your pew Bibles, if you are using one of those. And if you don't mind, I'd like to invite you just to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, any time I prepare to preach God's Word, I am always convicted as I do so, and especially so this week as I look at this passage and a list of qualifications that I am to live up to and see myself falling short so often. So before we dive in, won't you please join me in prayer? Father, we do thank you that you are a gracious God who works through the people whom you have created and bought with the blood of your precious Son. We bow before you. We thank you for your Son, Christ, and we pray that you would be honored and magnified this evening, that your word would go forth with your power and accomplish your purpose, because you are a great God who keeps his promises. And we know that our hearts are in your hand and you direct them wherever you please. So we submit to you, and we come with excitement to worship you, and to see what our great God will do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, a friend from church sent me an article from a a website, and I thought tonight would be an appropriate time to share it with you, uh, to read a portion of it. It goes like this. Don Lawrence preaches three times a week to an appreciative congregation at Life Baptist Church. His sermon tapes often sell out, and this year he's leading the people through a study of Matthew's gospel, much like Pastor Rogers is leading us. But Lawrence is not a real person. He is a virtual, on-screen pastor whose sermon topics, personality, even mannerisms are chosen collectively by his congregation. We've never been happier, says head elder Louis Francesca. We finally got the pastor we all want. Virtual Pastor, a UK company, began pioneering the virtual pastor model in 2005 and has created lifelike on-screen personalities which preach, joke, and give personal anecdotes as if they were real people. All their sermons and personal stories are scavenged from the internet. When a church subscribes to Virtual Pastor, each person in the congregation helps shape their pastor by entering likes and dislikes into a response box during the services. This live feedback is fed into the company's servers and helps change the pastor's sermon topics, hairstyle, and more in the following weeks. 
The result is a pastor perfectly tailored to the will of the congregation. Co-creator Gavin McGrady says, We unify churches and remove any reason for quarreling. Well, it takes 18 months for a congregation to fine-tune their pastor so he becomes a perfect representation of what they want. The shaping includes gestures, physical appearance, personality, hobbies, and a sense of humor. Of course, different churches have produced widely differing results. A congregation in Huntington Beach, California, adopted the virtual pastor model last year, and within weeks, their on-screen pastor stopped wearing suits and started wearing Hawaiian shirts, shorts, and flip-flops. I just can't picture Michael dressed like that. (laughs) Although I pay to see him dressed like that. Well, you know, after I read that article, I didn't realize at the moment, I didn't find out till later that it wasn't true. It was just written as a piece of satire. But the sad thing is, it's not too hard to believe, is it? It's not too far-fetched in the culture and world in which we live in today, even in the culture of our American churches. But I think the Apostle Paul would have something to say about that, if this were to try to become a reality. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells us how to truly choose our leaders. Not by entering our little likes and dislikes in a response box while they preach. But he gives us the true way to choose leaders. And not just to choose leaders, but to be leaders. And so this evening we are going to look at the qualifications for elders that Paul gives us. And he focuses in on five areas. He focuses in on the elders' morals, the elders' duties, his family, his experience, and his reputation. We'll take a few minutes to look at each one of these. So he begins by looking at the elder's morals. And the first thing that Paul says is that an elder must be above reproach. This, is the, this first qualification is central. It's a guide for all the rest. To be above reproach does not mean that the elder will never sin or that he will be perfect. Remember, Paul himself was an apostle. He was a leader in the church. And look back to chapter 1 and remember how he describes himself. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And this is not a description of Paul prior to his conversion. Instead, remember, as he has grown in Christ, he's become increasingly aware of his own sinfulness. And I believe that that is true for any who know and love Christ. The more we see Christ, as Pastor Rogers mentioned this morning, as we see him, he becomes bigger in our eyes. We see him all the more glorious. And at the same time, we become worse, don't we? Our sin becomes more clear. And we become more and more aware of our own sin. So while this call to be above reproach, it's not a call to be sinless, but it is a call for the elder to be blameless in his outward observable conduct. He must be free from scandalous sin. The integrity of an elder must be beyond question. And so, by God's grace, the pattern of the elder's life will conform to the characteristics that Paul lists here, and it will be a model for the congregation to follow. This is how Paul begins. Then he goes on to say that the elder must be a husband of but one wife. And I think perhaps Paul begins in this area... Because it seems that this is where many leaders are prone to fall. I'm sure we all 
know too many stories of leaders who have fallen in this area and the church at large. And as we look at this, what does it mean to be a husband of but one wife? There's actually a fair amount of debate as to what this actually means. But the Greek text literally means that the elders be a one-woman man. So it's not simply referring to the elder's marital status, but also includes his moral purity. Now, some have said that the husband of one wife excludes single men from serving as elders. But that is missing what Paul is saying here. And in fact, Paul himself was single. And he also mentioned that men who are single have a great opportunity for greater service in the kingdom of God. So that is not what Paul is saying here. It is true, commonly, elders will be married, and God often will use the demands and callings as a husband and a father to do much of the sanctifying work in their lives before they are ready to serve as elders. I'm sure all the elders of this church could attest to that fact. I know in my own life that my wife Amy has been, aside from God and his word, the number one sanctifying influence in my life. Through her, I have seen what God is like. And she has helped me become more like Christ. And so God will often use the family, the spouse, to help an elder become prepared to serve and to lead. But marriage is not a requirement for an elder. Some focus on this one wife wording, and they say that the qualification is excluding polygamy and remarriage. But remember, the focus is not marital status alone, but moral purity as well. In fact, a man could have only one wife and not yet be a one-woman man. Neither does this qualification exclude divorced men or remarried men from spiritual leadership. Paul is referring to moral purity here just as he is the marital status. And God has made it clear elsewhere in his word that there are times, while he does hate divorce, there are occasions when he allows divorce to the innocent party, occasions of adultery or occasions of willful desertion, you may have heard. Uh, that term used, when maybe an unbelieving spouse will leave. The innocent party is free to remarry, God has told us in his word. But the focus here is on a one-woman man. The one-woman man is a man who's totally faithful. There are no other women in his life. He's a man who is faithful to his marriage vows. He's a man who has the attitude of Winston Churchill. Maybe you have heard this story before. The one time Winston Churchill was at a formal banquet... And all the distinguished guests were being asked the same question. If you could not be who you were, who you are, who would you be? And they were all curious to hear what Winston Churchill would say. And it came to be his turn to answer the question. And he stood up and he said thoughtfully, If I could not be who I am. And he paused and he took Lady Churchill's hand. And he said, I would be Lady Churchill's second husband. Quite a good answer, I believe. But it indicates this attitude. The attitude of a one-woman man. A one-woman man is devoted in his heart and mind to the woman who is his wife. He loves her. He desires her. He thinks only of her. And he maintains sexual purity both in his conduct and in his thoughts and in his thought life. So the elder must be a one-woman man. Paul goes on to say the next three qualifications here as he's, he's dealing with the morals of an elder. He says an elder must be temperate, he must be self-controlled, and he must be respectable. Now all three of these have to do with an elder's judgment. And they indicate that the leaders of the church must be leaders who think clearly, alert, watchful, vigilant. They take notice of spiritual needs. 
They warn of spiritual dangers. The self-controlled elder is well-disciplined. He has balanced judgment. He knows how to correctly order his own priorities, and he views the world through God's eyes. He must also be respectable. This means that he has a well-ordered life. Think of it. An elder who doesn't have his own life in order will not be able to bring order to the church. Now, among other things Paul leads into this, this applies to an elder's drinking habits. Now, while the Bible doesn't require that our elders completely abstain from the consumption of alcohol, Paul does say in verse 3 that they must not be given to drunkenness. An elder, a leader in the church, should not have a reputation as a drinker or as a drunkard. And I think it would nearly go without saying that an alcoholic could not serve as an elder or an overseer because they would be incapable of the kind of sober judgment that Paul has just described and that is required in a leader of God's church. An elder must not be given to drunkenness. Paul mentions three other qualifications here in dealing with the elder's morals, and I'll just mention them very briefly. Uh, They're pretty much self-explanatory, but he says the elder must not be violent, but gentle. He must not be quarrelsome, and he must not be a lover of money. I just want to mention that last one there, not a lover of money. Notice the amount of money that an elder has has nothing to do with whether he's qualified or not. Salary does not matter. What does matter is that the elder is content with what God has entrusted to his care. And what matters is how he views his money. In chapter 6, Paul will say that the love of money is the root of all evil. So the elder is not in love with money. What matters is how he views his money and especially the affection that he has towards it. Money is not his God or his idol. When we move on to the elder's duties, and Paul mentions two things here among the elder's duties. An elder must be hospitable, and he also must be able to teach. First of all, he must be hospitable. The underlying principle here is that elders must make a personal commitment to the worldwide spread of the gospel. Now, you might be thinking, how do you get that from hospitable? Doesn't that just mean to be a good host or have my family over at Thanksgiving time, things like that? Well, in the days of the early church, hospitality was necessary for the spread of the gospel. People involved in Christian work needed a good place to stay. They didn't have hotels or motels in that day. They couldn't just check into the Best Western when they visited your town. And the inns that did exist in that day were dirty, they were expensive, and they were notoriously evil and even immoral, often places where the visitors would be beaten or robbed. And so this made it essential for Christians and Christian homes to open their homes to these itinerant Christian preachers who would be traveling around and spreading the gospel. Now, all Christians are to be good hosts, to love strangers, as this qualification calls us to. And here... We have tremendous opportunity to do that, even in the midst of our own congregation. Every year we have the missions conference. Missionaries come, and they need a place to stay. What a great opportunity to practice hospitality, to support the spread of the gospel. What a great opportunity to receive a blessing as your family and your children can see God at work in the lives of our missionaries. We also have the Ministry of American Home Life right nearby, and they are often bringing in students from foreign countries as part of their foreign exchange program. And I know some of you have hosted those students in your home before. What a great opportunity for us to advance the cause of the gospel, to be a missionary in your own home for somebody far across the world. And just think what could happen 
if one of those students would come to know the Lord. They take the gospel back with them. And then entire families can be transformed by the gospel. The leaders of the church must practice hospitality with the aim to advancing the gospel. Well, also leaders must be able to teach. This qualification, this duty relates specifically to the giftedness and the function of the elder. In chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those those whose work is preaching and teaching. And so in the PCA, we make a distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders. Now, all elders direct the affairs of the church, but some of them, the teaching elders, they concentrate specifically on teaching and preaching. Typically, the work of a pastor is to teach the Word of God. They may do many other things as well. They may use their gifts in administration, in leading worship, in discipleship, in evangelism, visiting, planning, all kinds of other things. But first and foremost, the pastor is a teacher of God's Word. And so in some way, he exercises the ministry of God's word in every aspect of his calling. But teaching elders aren't the only ones who are to to be able to teach. Ruling elders also exercise this gift in Sunday school, in Bible studies, in home fellowship groups, in evangelism, in discipleship. In many ways, our ruling elders also exercise this gift of teaching. And we must remember that it is a gift. It's not natural ability. That makes one a good teacher, able to teach. But it is the spirit-given enablement to teach effectively the truths of God's word. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 3 that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. All teachers of God's word are completely dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit to make the teaching of his word an effectual means of salvation. I think it would be appropriate for us to just take a moment to reflect on what it is that the elders are to teach. We're to be able to teach, but what is the focus of our teaching? I want to share two passages with you, both of them written uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves. So if you are at a church or watching a pastor preach on television or listening on the radio and the focus of the message is mankind or me, 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 you can know that he is not preaching what he's called to preach. We do not preach ourselves, but what do we preach? We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We preach Jesus Christ. We do not preach ourselves. And then Paul also says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He says to them, speaking of the saints. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. What is it that we proclaim, that we teach? It is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, lived the perfect life, died in our place, and rose again. 
We proclaim Christ our Savior. Moving on, Paul mentions the elder's family. The elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. The Greek word for manage here has two primary meanings. It refers to both supervision and to nurture. The fathers, the elders, they do both. They exercise spiritual authority by governing and by caring. And they do this with both dignity and respect. Now this goes both ways. Children have a responsibility to honor, to obey, to respect their fathers. But fathers have a responsibility to treat their children like people made in the image of God. They promote a relationship of mutual respect. His family life must be exemplary. Now Paul's logic here is that a man whose children respect him must be a good father. He must be a good leader. And thus he fulfills this qualification. For a man who cares for his own children well is ready to care for all of God's children. He already knows how to instruct, how to nurture, how to discipline, and how to deal patiently with rebellion. But Paul says the opposite is true as well. This is indicated by the rhetorical question that he asks in verse 5. He says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he, fit, how can he care for God's church? If a man has not proven himself with his own family, he is not yet ready to take care of God's church. Now, let's not forget for a moment that this is God's church that we are talking about. With Christ himself as the head. The only way that any of us are a part of God's family, of his church, is because God in his love and his mercy has sent his son Christ to provide the redemption that we need, to provide redemption from the fall by becoming a curse in our place. It's only by his mercy and grace that we have been rescued from darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul says in 1 Peter that once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. This only comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. Just as Linda was saying in reference to Matt, we owe it all to the grace of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only reason that any man is ever qualified to serve as an elder in God's church is due to the continuing work of God's grace in his heart and life. Jesus himself says in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, there is no hope for any man to ever fulfill any of these qualifications, let alone all of them. Yes, we are to work hard. Yes, we are to make every effort to be holy. To do all that we can to live up to these standards. Philippians 2 tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the very next verse, the very next phrase tells us that it is God himself who works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So the elder's life must be centered around Jesus Christ. It must be centered around the gospel, the grace of God, humbly recognizing our utter and our daily need for the continuing work of God's grace in our lives. Well, two final things to look at here, the elder's experience and the elder's reputation. The elder's experience here in verse 6, Paul says that the elder must not be a recent convert. This qualification has to do with spiritual maturity. To be a servant leader in the church 
is no place for beginners. And Paul references this in chapter 5, verse 22 also, where he tells Timothy not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. You know, it's better to not have enough elders than to ordain men too soon before they are ready. It's also good to keep in mind this is not speaking of biological age. It's not saying that young men cannot be elders, just it's speaking of the spiritual age. Men who, who are mature in their faith. Uh, men must be mature in their faith before they can qualify for the office of elder. And then finally, Paul looks at the elder's reputation. An important point here as he closes this section in verse 7. He says he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. The godly character of an elder must not only be manifested in his personal life, in his home, and in his church, but he must also have a good reputation with those who are outside of the church. This is a reminder for us that the church is in the world. And the mission of the church includes world evangelization. Remember again, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, what Paul tells us. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the, church, knowledge of the truth. The leaders of the church are to be involved in the spread of the gospel. It is to be a priority in their lives. And people's impressions of Christ are based partly on the behavior of Christians particularly the behavior of those who are leaders in the church. That is one reason why it is so grievous and so troublesome when leaders in the church fall into sin. Because they disgrace the name of Christ. They hurt the cause of evangelism. They cause the name of Christ to be blasphemed among those who are outside the church. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that the opposite of this ought to be true. The leaders of the church and truly all believers ought to live lives that give not only them but also Christ a good reputation outside of the church. Now, in order for this to happen, what is necessary? In order for this to happen, you must have relationships with people who are outside of the church. You must have friendships with people who are outside of the church. They must know you well enough to be able to testify to your character and to your reputation. I believe this is a call for us to remember that the church is a light in the world. We should not avoid those outside the church, but we ought to befriend them and love them. We ought to cultivate relationships with them, to be hospitable and to welcome them into our home. To follow the example of Christ, who was known as a friend of sinners. And why? Because he was striving to point them to the salvation that he came to bring. Paul concludes here with a solemn warning, one that we need to take heed to. To be aware of. He concludes by giving a warning about falling into the devil's trap. You know, Satan would like nothing better than to set a trap to discredit a leader in the church. He knows the harm that that would bring to the cause of Christ and to the church overall. The devil here, he's vividly pictured as a hunter of souls, and his aim is at those who are leaders in the church. The leaders of the church are marked men. Satan is out to get them. This ought to sober us. We ought to take this warning seriously. And for those of you who are members of the church, it ought to be motivation for you to pray fervently and to pray regularly for those who are leaders in the church. Many of you are doing that already. 
And we appreciate that and need that so much. But I would encourage and exhort all of you to make that a daily practice. To have a list of the leaders of our church and to pray through them on a regular basis, a weekly basis. I encourage you to let these elders know that you're praying for them. To ask them how you can pray for them. To encourage them, to send them notes, to offer them your support. The leaders of the church are vital to the health and growth of the church. Satan is trying to attack them and bring them down in order to discredit the name of Christ. We ought to work just as hard to lift them up and uphold them and build them up and bring them before the throne of grace. Now it's, it's been great to hear from Wayland and Linda this evening and learn of God's work across the world. And we've learned tonight one thing we can pray for over in Japan is that God would raise up leaders in the church to serve there. So I encourage you to do that as well. My hope this evening is that all of you would strive to have the character of leaders in the church. That you would all strive to fulfill these qualifications. My hope is also that many of you would be called to serve as elders in the church. Many of you young men would think about the qualifications for elders. And you would make it a matter of prayer. Before God, what would he have you to do? How would he have you to serve the church in the years ahead? It's also my hope that all of you would make it a habit to pray for and support the leaders of our church. And that you would pray that God would continue to bestow grace upon them as they lead the congregation of Westminster. May we commit this to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father, you are a gracious God and King, a merciful Savior, a God that we need every moment of every day. We thank you for the leaders you have given to this church. We thank you for the work of grace that you have done in their hearts and lives. And we pray that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would give them strength to stand firm, that you would protect them from temptation, that you would turn their hearts towards you, giving them a greater understanding of the gospel every day. May they see Christ clearly. May they grow in their love for you. May they follow you in obedience. We pray that you would be honored because of their lives, that their lives would adorn the gospel, that people would look at them and bring glory to you because of the way that they lived. Father, strengthen our leadership and raise up new leaders as well for the sake of your kingdom and your church here. Lord, we also pray for those in Japan that you would raise up godly men who would love you and love your church and serve you with joy and gladness and faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you for your design to build and lead your church. And we thank you for Christ, our head, our ultimate leader who gave his life for us. We pray that we would follow his example of servant leadership. And we pray these things through his name alone. Amen.